Welcome to As in Heaven, Season 3. My name is Jim Davis. I'm your host and the pastor of Orlando Grace Church. I'm joined by my co-host and friend, Mike Aitchison, who serves as the lead pastor and planter at Christ United Fellowship here in Orlando. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by a very familiar face, if you've been with us for a while. This is my good friend, Dr. Justin Holcomb, who is the newly elected bishop of Central Florida in the Episcopal Church, which is a lot easier to remember than your old title. What was it? Do you remember? Reverend Canon something. <laughs> it was Canon for vocations. So I was a Reverend Canon doctor. There, there you go. Reverend Canon doctor for vocation. Okay. Bishop is so much easier. Thank you for moving up the chain sure. here. Yeah, sure. Doing me a favor. Um, you it was do a all lot- for you. <laughs> mainly, mainly. Uh, so you do a lot of other things. You uh, are also an adjunct professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. You, uh, my wife took your class a few years ago on apologetics, and you've written a number of books, both solo and with your lovely wife, Lindsay. And I'll give a shout out to y'all's newest book, God Made Babies, Helping Parents Answer the Baby Question. Uh, I will say our, our kids go to school together. We have a lot of overlap in life, and I can personally attest to what a blessing you two have been to us on all levels and stages of that topic. So thank you for coming here and rejoining us here today. Thanks, man. Uh, Yeah, uh, one, it is a rejoining. That's the fun part is being back here in a different capacity because we got this thing started a few years ago and then was a co-host. And so now being back as a guest is fun. So thank you for having me back. And uh, and same thing with Mike too. So all of our kids all go to the same school. One of my daughters is in Mike's daughter's grade and class and all that kind of stuff. And so having all the overlap with uh, wives, kids, and being local pastors in this area is kind of fun. So this is, this just makes sense. Indeed. Well, this is the second in a two-part series on what we've called the de-church casualties. That is people who have experienced some specific hurt in the church that has caused them not to come, not to come back. Um, and this, this could be hurt that the church has done or uh, another category of just they, they've decided they don't believe what the church believes. And we're going to be focusing on the former here for the purpose of this episode. Uh, we want to focus specifically on abuse in the church and pastoral falls. So we know from our research that between 5 and 7% of uh, the de-churched Americans have left because of abuse in the church. And this is something, Justin, that you have found yourself in the middle of, uh, both in some very public ways and often in some very private ways. And actually, you and I got to know each other because we had a very, uh, very messy, difficult situation in our church. And you, you came alongside me. I know you all, in some cases it costs costs churches lots of money to have an expert like you and you just came in you served us you weren't looking for money you just wanted to you cared about the people here and uh, and that just has formed a, a friendship that I'm really thankful and for and we met in, we met in a uh, homing goods store like a home depot or a Lowe's it was I a Lowe's, it was. Lowe's. Right. we're looking for plumbing stuff and all of a sudden we ended up having a conversation about abuse and aisle 7 i mean i had i had just been praying god what do i do in this crazy situation. And there I walk into, I think, plumbing. And there you were, 
So this this connects because you you in an official capacity work closely with Grace Ministries, which is an acronym for Godly Responses to Abuse in Christian Environments. And in that role, you've worked on some of the worst abuse situations in pastoral falls in recent in recent times. Um, much of this and your own personal journey has has just made you an ideal person to bring on this show and and speak to this really sensitive topic. Can I jump in on that real quick? Yeah. Just because. Um, so with my wife, we've written seven books on abuse prevention and how to respond to abuse, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, children and trauma, and then uh, also some preventative stuff for children. And uh, so that's professionally we've joined up together. I'm a minister. I'm a pastor. You know, that's my role. So caring for people uh, professionally. My wife was a, a case manager for a sexual assault crisis center and a domestic abuse uh, shelter. And then personally, what I experienced, um, and and also um, as a child, but also what my wife experienced um, uh, in, a, in a not safe home of uh, not being abused, but being threatened, um, does pull it together. So when, when you said the kind of personal stuff, I wanted to make sure this is, is personal, it's professional, and it's pastoral all together. Thanks. That's that's a very helpful addition. And I, and I teach a class at RTS called Abuse in the Church, and a few other seminaries have started doing this, which is really encouraging, which is highlighting the need for this episode and the reason why you guys are talking about this, because it's becoming more known, the significance of abuse. And so the fact that seminaries, when institutions start saying, we don't have a course on this, we need one. So I think I've taught abuse in the church at four different seminaries. I'm not even sure right now because they, they keep on coming in, which is encouraging. So. It is. Well, let's start on this topic of abuse. Some some kinds of abuse are clear, especially when it's physical abuse, but there's also spiritual abuse and emotional abuse, which is not always as easily identified. So as a primer, what is spiritual abuse? What is emotional abuse? And what are the signs that a church leader has crossed this line into that kind of abuse? I love, love that because most people think abuse, they think because abuse and violence go together, they think it has to be physical a lot of the intimate partner abuse, what we used to call domestic abuse, um, a, a lot of the most, uh, the, the physical is obvious when you have wounds and, and bruises and broken bones, uh, but there's the verbal, the spiritual, the emotional, uh, just the threat of violence, but it's not just physical violence. There's emotional violence, verbal violence, psychological, spiritual, that kind of thing. So I love expanding our understanding of abuse. So let's look at emotional. Emotional abuse involves someone trying to control another person by using emotions. Abuse is all about power and control. That's the goal. And so someone trying to control and misuse power over someone else. And what are the tools they use? They, they do it. Well, they do it to criticize, embarrass, shame, guilt, manipulate them. And the most common way we see that are in intimate partner relationships and dating and marriage uh, some type of intimate partner, but any other type of relationship. It can happen by, uh, it's hard to have emotional abuse with a stranger just because there's not a relationship. You're not manipulating the relationship and identity and communication. But this does happen with coworkers, family members, um, and then in churches it can happen. So the it's, it's a pattern of using demeaning remarks and making threats to inflict some type of control or harm to manipulate someone else. And some, some signs would be, in, you know, being intimidated or threatened or humiliated or, you know, the silent treatment. There's, there's some signs of that. That's, that's emotional abuse. We can dive back in on, on that if we need to. On the spiritual one, 
And this one's always tricky because after my wife and I wrote a few books on abuse, people started saying, well, what about spiritual abuse? Because it's all put together. In one hand, any type of abuse that happens in a spiritual setting can be understood as spiritual abuse. So if the pastor is, um, is we'll say cleanly or cleanly, uh, uh, and I don't mean clean as in like, uh, you know, some type of rating. I just mean as descriptively as possible. If the pastor is having sex with a parishioner who the pastor's not married to, that's clergy sexual abuse. It's not an affair. It's not an adultery. It's actually a misuse of spiritual authority and power. That's why when clergy are like, oh, well, I committed adultery and it makes it sound like it was a mutual thing. Uh, no, there, there's even even laws. No, like Texas and other other states have laws against this. So uh, it's it's actually abusive. So that's that's one. But the reason this is so important is because it's hard to define. You, you don't want to just say, well, if it's in a spiritual setting and abuse happens, then it's spiritual abuse. Let's actually dive into the spiritual side of abuse. And I'm really grateful for uh, two people who started doing work on this. I'm going to read their definitions because I actually use them when I teach abuse in the church. R. Scott Clark started writing on his blog about spiritual abuse. I, I taught a class called uh, Abuse in the Church, and I did some work with the faculty at Westminster, California, and he was in on the conversation. And then that day, he started writing about spiritual abuse on his blog. He says, the, it's the malevolent, ungracious use of the authority or processes of the church to lord it over the laity or other officers in the church for personal gain, emotional or psychological manipulation, or for the exercise of ungodly or undue control over others, which infringes upon Christian liberty and that violates the second table of the moral law of God. That's helpful. And then Michael Kruger wrote a book, The Bully Pulpit, and yeah. I endorsed it. Uh, he's, you know, New Testament scholar, uh, you know, oversees a seminary, and, and so the perfect person to write this. And people, again, people were asking us to do this, and Lindsay and I just thought, nah, we, we, need, we, need, we need experts who are looking at the scriptures and doing it. We could have tried to do it, but these guys did it so much better. And he defines it as uh, when a spiritual leader, such as a pastor, elder, or head of a Christian organization, so leader, wields his, and I want to add in her, his or her position of spiritual authority in such a way that they manipulate, domineer, bully, intimidate those under them as a means of accomplishing what he or she takes to be a biblical or spiritual goal. And so it really involves three things. A person in a position of spiritual authority, sinful methods of controlling and domineering others, and then being used to achieve godly, biblical, or spiritual goals. So it's getting to the right goals, went in the wrong methods. That's, that's the, um, the shortest way, version I can give you of the definition of spiritual abuse. Oh, man, Justin, that, that's super helpful. And of course, is, is it possible, though, that the, the goals could also be warped? Yeah, that's, that's actually, <laughs> yes. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, they, they could actually be manipulated and distorted goals. And when it's distorted, when, when the pastor is grooming someone for an inappropriate relationship for their own sexual gratification to exploit the other person. That's clearly a distorted one. And so it's, it's easier to see that as like, that's just off limits. What's so confusing about spiritual abuse is when it's actually going in the seemingly godly correct direction, but it feels off. It, it feels manipulative and domineering and that kind of thing. But absolutely. It, I, I want to make sure that third point, um, Sometimes abuse is just obviously abuse. And then when it gets covered over with spiritual stuff, it's like, wait a second, this, this person's in charge in some way. And, you know, they're closer to God 
They're, they work for God, but they're doing this. Like maybe something's wrong with me. So that the, when it is in a biblical godly direction is super confusing, but absolutely it can be for distorted means. Okay. Yeah. It's helpful. So what, what should someone do if they su- suspect emotional or spiritual abuse from their leadership, from their church leadership? Yeah. To answer, I, I want to give four resources for, for your listeners. Uh, Bully Pulpit, I just mentioned Michael Kruger's book, great book. Um, when Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroat, one of my friends, we were seminary classmates, spectacular. Uh, Redeeming Power by Diane Langberg. And then there's a book by Wade Mullins. I've, re- I've, I've suggested all four of these, but his is Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. I would get that Wade Mullins book. I mean, all of them are great, but I get that book because it actually works not just with the structures of power, but what's going on in decoding that. So that's an objective. It's really helpful if you're, if, if someone is thinking that they are suspecting emotional and spiritual abuse from their church leader to hear someone who doesn't know their story, tell them. And also they go, they start checking off the list. Like, yep, yep, yep. That's true too. We experienced that with um, rid of my disgrace, our book on sexual abuse. We, we went through and gave a checklist of the effects and definition. About half the people that have talked to us about our book said, I didn't even know I experienced sexual abuse because I thought sexual abuse was just was just I don't mean to say it like that was, was rape. And you expanded the definition. They didn't realize it till they read a definition and went, yeah, they started checking things off. That happens with this Wade Mullins book. Something's not right. Decoding the hidden tactics of abuse and freeing yourself. So that's, that's one is that's, that's a personal thing you can do that can be really helpful to have an objective voice from the outside. Again, in addition to that, running it past someone you trust who is outside of that potential dysfunctional system. If you have an abusive leader in a church, the system's messed up. It's a family system that is dysfunctional and dark. And if you ask someone in that system, they might be making excuses because they're actually a part of the family system. So getting someone outside of that system that you trust, being as clear and telling as full of a story as you possibly can. We're all limited because we're finite and we're fallen, but being as objective on this person said this, this is what happened, this felt weird, and see what they register. Uh, talking to a, a, a therapist, a counselor is a great way to do this. Also, they're, they're involved, they'll help validate when you're going, I thought this kind of felt weird. They go, yes, that's an appropriate response. Uh, if, you can, if you have access to another pastor in town, that, this actually happened to me many years ago. I was experiencing something like this local pastor in my hometown told me he heard about some conflict. I asked him and the pastor just said, oh yeah, I mean, get out of there. That's dangerous. And it was so helpful to have another pastor. Another one is just leave, leave, get safe. If it's clear. Now, again, it all depends because of what you said, if you suspect emotional and spiritual abuse, if you're suspecting it, there's something bad. There's something jacked up. There's something wrong happening. Um, That's not the way it's supposed to be. Now it could just be sin. And sin needs to be pointed out, repented of, or it could be abuse. All abuse is sin, but not all sin is abuse. And it's when it's abuse that it needs to be dealt with carefully, but also uh, very strongly. Uh, So leaving and reporting it to um, the denominational authorities or the elders, um, it depends on, on the polity. But getting the support you need, the healthy care that you need, what I'd also recommend is not just running to Matthew 18. People 
run and misuse Matthew 18. It's hard to have a Matthew 18 when there's a significant power dynamic involved with abuse. And so be careful. I want listeners, but also, you know, especially the, the church leaders to hear, go read Matthew 18. Jesus is depicting a situation where the offender and the offended are on equal footing. They're, they're peers. Um, the person offended is not in a position to uh, go against their abuser and speak when they're in an abuse situation. That, the abuse changes things. And then given the nature of the offense and the likelihood that the abuser will respond negatively and perhaps violently, it's not even safe for them to go to the abuser if they're suspecting abuse. And that's not to say that there are other, there are other steps you can do that involve the church that would still be godly. Uh, there's a godly way to respond to abuse, but Matthew 18 is not just, that ends up getting used as like the blanket response, like, well, they didn't go to Matthew 18. They didn't go directly to the person. Well, they didn't go to the person because the person raped them. What are you, what are you expecting them to do? Like, there's a certain level of foolishness that gets played in to the misuse of Matthew 18. Of course, Matthew 18 is inspired scripture that we should follow, but it's not the, 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 the magic a solution for all church conflict, especially in cases of abuse. All right, so you talk about Matthew 18. I want to talk a little bit about 1 Timothy 5, 19, honing in, on, uh, honing in the focus specifically on the pastor or priest under the general umbrella of pastoral mal- malpractice. Um, I think how we handle abuse allegations by the pastor is is really a, a misunderstood here. So 1 Timothy 5.19 says that no one should bring a charge against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. So what has happened in many churches is that a pastor who has committed some form of abuse uh, or leaders who do, and they're trying to cover it up, whether complicit or otherwise, say that the accuser, well, they need to go away until they can come back when they have more witnesses, which essentially is you said with Matthew 18 can shut them down, especially if the nature of the abuse was with was witnessless. <laughs> so how should we understand this verse and its implications on what we and how we bring this forward? Okay, so uh, the verse, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three. So let's look at that on, on the evidence. But let's go a few verses before that. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And that talks about all the qualifications in First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. One thing, this is not about the text. This is just about the culture of kind of mostly American evangelical celebrity culture. We're not using the qualifications that Paul gave to Timothy and Titus. We're picking famous people who can gather a lot of people. So if we actually first had qualifications in place, we'd have less of these problems. Now, it doesn't fix everything, but we're actually not, too many churches are not following the basic qualifications of an elder or a deacon. First, second Timothy and Titus, it's listing them specifically. And so first Timothy five is assuming, first of all, that all the other qualifications have actually been followed and that the person is actually above reproach. They've already shown their, their pattern of life and their theology to be legit, good, and godly over a long period of time. They didn't just happen to get on YouTube and grab a microphone and people started following them and they wrote a book and became famous. That's not how you become a pastor. So um, let's just state the obvious. Now, let's get to it now. (coughs) Paul, Paul is saying what, what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 17. There's things about accusations against leaders not being based 
on unsubstantiated charges. So this is actually important. It actually, it actually is assuming the best intent of the elder. It does say charge. That actually means complaint and accusation or crime. So we can't, there's no wiggle room there. It would be really nice. I was, you know, I, I really wish it just said, you know, complaint because then uh, that doesn't hem us in at all. So it sounds like, wait a second, these pastors. So here's one thing. Some of the pastors who call themselves pastor are not legitimate pastors. So uh, now let's go to the text. That's the point I want to make. Yeah. So imagine, imagine uh, clergy sexual or clergy child sexual abuse. Um, the Roman Catholics, this is kind of the stereotype that they've been given. The, the Roman Catholic Church has nothing on the Protestant Church. Protestants are actually worse than Roman Catholics on child sexual abuse. A lot of that abuse does not take place with any other witnesses. There are thousands, if not millions, of children who have been sexually abused by a clergy person with no other witness around. So I don't think Paul is suggesting that that kid should just shut up and not talk about it because there's no more witnesses to bring it. That, that doesn't seem appropriate. That doesn't sit well. And there's a reason it doesn't sit well, because that's not what the passage is saying. Uh, abusers don't abuse in front of eyewitnesses. Most of them don't. Actually, there's some, there's some research on some of them who actually do as a power move, but that's, that's the second thing. The preposition in 1 Timothy 5, 19 is in the genitive case. And, and uh, prepositions are not always obvious and clear. You have to know how Greek works. And it's, if it's to be interpreted on the evidence of, which three of the translations that most people go to have it, then it is the only place in all of Scripture where it has that meaning, on the evidence of. It's never used like that. It's actually a bad interpretation. Um, look at Acts 25.10. Paul answers um, and says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal using that same preposition in the genitive case. And it seems impossible in a legal context that he would mean on the evidence of Caesar's tribunal. Yeah. So what it actually means is before, you know, meaning to be judged and found either guilty or innocent by Caesar. It seems to make perfect sense. And so I suggest that that bad translation of 1 Timothy 5.19 is causing a mess. 1 Timothy 5.19 gets used like Matthew 18. Um, don't receive an accusation except in front of two or three witnesses that can actually do something about it. That's what 1 Timothy 5.19 is. It's a lot longer just to get there, but I wanted people to feel feel the difficulty of the mistranslation. If, you, if, if this is the inspired word of God and you're not supposed to bring a charge unless you have witnesses, which is a principle, of scripture. That is a principle. That's a basic principle. Don't have unsubstantiated charges. That is not what's being said by Paul. Nowhere else in the Bible is that uh, preposition used on the evidence of, because it means before two or three witnesses. So uh, don't bring, so then if you put that in there, it says don't bring a charge unless you're bringing it before some witnesses who can actually do something about getting justice. That is a very different meaning. Uh, it's a lot. I mean, just that feels right. I mean, in, in, with any scripture, when, when you, you see what it's really saying, it feels, it should feel right. And the reason I ask is because you brought up Matthew 18. So if those are misunderstandings, then what, what I want to ask, let, let, me, let me say it like this. I got to be very vague because, but I was brought into a church one time where there was a sexual abuse case. And, um, I, I want to assume the best about the elders in this church, but there were at least one or two that didn't that, that thought 
the the information should go to them before authorities. That they should have some filtering out. Uh, and this was a minor too. Uh, and so w- when I came in, I was clear, no, this goes straight to the authorities. Um, and, and assuming the best, they just, they didn't know. I'm, I'm just, just going to try to assume the best here. They didn't know. It didn't seem like they were trying to cover it up. But in any case, it was, it was just this eye-opening moment about how, for me, how many people, church leaders, do not know the first two to four steps that they need to take when presented with some sort of abuse in the church. So could you give that to us, two to four steps? What are the first most crucial things to do as a church leader when you hear about suspected abuse in the in your midst? Yeah, first, I, I admire and I get your desire to have the best possible interpretation. I, I try to do that too, especially with elders, leaders. Um, the nicest thing I can say about people who would, in that case, that would say it should come to us first is that they are very ignorant and dangerous. And that's the nicest thing I can say. That is an ignorant, foolish, and dangerous approach. Um, What's the worst thing you could say? I mean, let's just go both ways. I'm not, I'm just saying you got a spectrum. What you got, that's the nicest side. What would be the more? They're complicit in abuse and helping cover it up. And they are guilty of the good old boy club or good old girl club, depending on how that works out. And they are covering up and probably perpetuating future abuse and the lack of healing for the victim that has brought this to the church. And so they are a barrier to the gospel being applied to a victim. And Jesus has some things to say about that, about millstones. And I need elders and want elders and church leaders to hear Jesus's words clearly. You want to be on the other side of the millstone conversation. And elders who think that it's their job, usually when churches do this, this is what happened with Sovereign Grace, is they tried to keep it in-house. Um, yeah, we years ago, we used to talk about this from Grace, godly response to abuse in Christian environments, and people came against us. How dare you? Now everyone's on the same page after they slandered Grace on, on that case. They tried to keep it in-house, keep the authority, keep the civil authorities out of the picture so they could keep it in-house. Now, pr- who knows about their intent? But... Um, uh, that's dangerous. So going back to your specific question, what are the first few things you can do? The first thing when you are told a story about abuse is to listen and believe them. The first thing you can do is listen and believe them. All, all of the research on survivor care says you should uh, active listening and indicating belief is the most important thing someone can actually do. Uh, they went through and said, you know, what... 10 different behaviors you can do. Number one from survivors of abuse is being listened to and believed. And you can, one, you can listen. That's the first thing you should do is is listen. Just actually pay attention. Ask if you can take notes. Indicate in any way possible that you're listening to them. Don't interrupt them. And don't ask probing questions. Let them unveil. They're building their trust in you. And then most people, most, most people do not lie about abuse. Uh, it's, it's the least falsely reported crime there is. So you can assume if someone's telling you something that they're actually telling you the truth. There's probably more. It's probably worse than you're imagining. Um, so it's it's easy for me to listen and then believe. I'm always assuming there's something more. There's one case where my wife, who is a survivor advocate, was lied to, one that she knows of. Um, almost every single time, everything I've heard is not only accurate, but it's worse than they told me in the initial disclosure. So listening and believing is a very, very crucial and important step. Now, you don't have to say, I believe everything you're saying, blah, blah, blah. You just be like, you're indicating I'm listening to you. And that's even if you're not even sure, 
If it sounds unfathomable to say, that sounds amazingly difficult. Like we give back to them, at least acknowledge how, believe how they feel. And so that's huge. The second is respond well. So responding to abuse, that looks like one, if your church doesn't have policies, have a policy on how you will respond to abuse. So respond as a, not only as an individual, as you do in listening and believing, but respond as a church. How does the church handle this? And then respond by initiating it with the authorities. Um, and so that responding is, going back to your question, Jim, is a lot of abuse cases that people will hear you're a mandated reporter. You need to go to the authorities. Call Child Protective Services. I call them three or four times a year. I hear cases. I call them and go, what's the best way to navigate this? And sometimes they'll say, you know, go to the police. This isn't how you should handle it. This is a better way to handle it. Call Child Protective Services. Uh, call the non-emergency police line. You might need to call the emergency police line, depending on what that abuse is. There's a spectrum of abuse. And so the intensity of how you respond is going to fall. Think what... And here, going back to that thing that your original question about going to the church or not, going to the authorities, uh, Christianity Today did years ago, and we'll find it for uh, listeners and show notes. They they did a, a survey of, of uh, uh, sur- survivor advocates. And the original question that they did at Christianity Today was, uh, if, if, a, if a woman is being abused by her husband who claims to be a Christian— should the should the woman go to the pastor first or the police? That was the original question. And then like three or four or five of us all responded and said, go to the police first. <laughs> and then so CT came back and said, we got to change the question. Why should an abused woman go to the police first instead of the pastor? So it was amazing that everyone across the spectrum that they got, they, they got complementarians, egalitarians. They got the whole spectrum of anyone who believed in Nicene Christianity to say, how should you respond? We all said the same thing. And what, you, you go to the authorities because clergy are not experts on abuse. Abusers are masterful at deceiving. They've been deceiving themselves and their victim and other people probably for years and decades. They're used to actually, many abusers have many victims in their life, not just like one. If if the survive if the if the victim sa- or the perpetrator says, oh man, I this is the first time I've ever done this. It's probably a lie, and they've been lying to themselves, to their parents, to their children, to their spouse, to their friends, to their pastors, to their coworkers for years, years. And so, you getting in the room with them and asking them all the tough questions is not likely going to bring you the clarity you want because they know how to deceive you, and they've even deceived themselves. So, listen and believe, respond. As a church, know what your policies are by going to the authorities when necessary and then handling it as a church. And scriptures, 1 Timothy and other passages, have things that you do when there is sin done as you go public with it. Church discipline, proactive care for survivors, and then responsible care for abusers. And um, I, I can say a few things about proactive care, which is uh, don't just, you know, thanks, just deal with it. Church dives in and says, how can we get you the care you need? I can be your pastor. Here's some support. Can we can we help support you with getting a therapist, or a, a, a counselor who can help navigate through this? Uh, what's needed for the care for your child? What's needed for, there's depending on what kind of abuse it is, the church should be able to step in and support. And then responsible care. The abuser, if they profess faith in Christ and they repent, um, 
then they're showing evidence that they're a brother or sister in Christ. But being responsible, what's the most loving thing for an abuser is not to let them continue in their their bondage of abuse and not to let them sin again. And it does and also protecting others who could be harmed by them. So what's it again on that spectrum? What's the most loving thing for that person who's an abuser also, not just the most loving thing for the survivor, but the abuser. And that would look like all the way from if they're a known child sex offender, they're never allowed to be around children. They're never allowed to be in the church with children. There's certain standards. Or if it's um, on a different part of the spectrum, um, there's ways that there's responsible care for abusers that protects everybody and themselves. And so one example at one church uh, we had registered sex offenders, tier one, which is the, they're out of three tiers, tier one. They had to register every time they came to church and they had to go to a service that we created that had no children. And everyone knew that they were registered sex offenders at that service. We, we wanted all victims of abuse to be aware of that in case that was activating or triggering for them. But these pastors, th- these, these, these people wanted to come to church and there was a Lord's table and they repented and they were, they also assumed all of the consequences. They were not making excuses. They, they showed everything about godly repentance, not worldly sorrow. And responsible care for them was, uh, not letting them be tempted in certain ways, but also giving them communion and letting them come to church in a certain way, uh, according to certain standards. So listen, respond as a church, proactive care and respo- proactive care for survivors and proactive care, responsible care for abusers. Yeah, Justin, there was so much wisdom there. Okay, but I'd I'd like to just come back to how the church should handle it, right? So can you speak to where it's appropriate to make something that's public that might bring shame on, on the victim? How do we navigate, okay, if there's a major leader in the church that has committed such a heinous infraction and disclosing it to the church, but also protecting the dignity of the victim. Because, you know, questions come up. Well, who brought this accusation? How do we know this is real? You know, all the the different uh, responses that could be incited as a result of, of that. Um, could you could you speak to that? Yeah, that that's that's a pastor asking a question. I love that. That's a, I mean, that's it. Um, you want to honor the agency of the survivor. That's huge. If the survivor, I know some cases where the survivor wants to be named in the church setting, like this happened. They, they, for them, there's, that's an empowering thing. Others, they don't want to be named because they, they know going against the pastor, even if it's true, somehow they're going to be maligned because the pastor's beloved. In many places, the pastors are beloved, especially in celebrity settings. But the way you do that is, um, Again, on that spectrum, if we're talking about abuse, let's just, so the, once we're talking about abuse and a church leader abusing, that is always public. No reason. Now, depending on how that, how that relates to spouse and children of that leader, if they're not involved, sometimes the spouse is involved. But if the spouse and the children are not involved, how do you honor them? But the church leader stuff, if it's abuse, must be made public. This is the problem. This is why the Southern Baptist Convention had such a problem with the Houston Chronicles that came out years ago, because they were just moving them all around. People make fun of the Roman Catholic Church and, you know, moving priests around. Again, I said this earlier, Protestants 
are way worse. The, the, the more fragmented the policy, polity, the more issues you're going to have because they just go to another town and sometimes down the road. Churches don't communicate with each other. And so abusers are just going from church to church. But um, make it public. Now, abuse cases could be, on most cases, abuse cases are disqualifying. So remove them if you need to. Figure out what's the most loving thing for the spouse and children. And then that goes public, whatever the policy is, different churches. So in, in the Episcopal Church, we actually have a thing called Title IV. And it's our, it's our restoration. It's discipline and restoration. Title IV is for restoration. Restoring them as a brother and sister in Christ, not into a position of authority. If I'm, I'm very comfortable saying that if a clergy person, minister, pastor, priest, uh, abuses, they are disqualified. They're gone. They're done. And then on very, very strict guidelines, would restoring them back to the office be something that I think would be wise? Err on the side. If you're going hunting, and I know, Jim, you hunt. If you go hunting with your kids and you hear a rustle in the bushes, you don't just pull over the gun and just shoot at the rustling. It could be one of your Unfortunately, some people do. They do. But, but yeah, that's it. That's terrible. And so if you're like, okay, um, no, flip that in reverse. Like, why would you just, if someone has shown you who they are, they misuse power to abuse it for their own. They're in Ezekiel 34. They're not a shepherd. They're a butcher. Why would you just go, eh, let's assume the best. You should not assume the best anymore. You should assume the worst. Now, how do you restore them as a brother or sister in Christ? That's a whole different thing. For the, for the survivor, uh, honoring their uh, desire is huge. I've seen it done both ways uh, on, good, on good fronts. The one case... I have the letter. I got permission for this letter. The church gave me the letter that they read to the entire church from the elders to the church that was addressed to the survivor who wanted to remain nameless. And it was beautiful. Like I remember the, the elders brought me the letter. This is in another denomination than my own. Brought me the letter. I'm reading it, weeping. It's so beautiful. I mean, I got permission to send this letter to other people. So I do. I take off all know, any, any uh, clear indications of anything that would give a clue of who this is. But for the authority of the church to say, we are so sorry for what happened to you. We are so proud of your courage. And this is the, the gospel. The work of Jesus Christ is applied specifically to the sin and crime that you experienced. We want to support you and we want everyone to know that you were brave and courageous, and that if anyone comes against you to gossip about you and say something about your character, we'll take care of it. We're supporting you. Like that rarely happens. Rarely. Even when a church handles the abusive side well, um, they don't know what to do really with the survivor. And so that's, does that answer the question, Mike? Oh, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, okay. <laughs> you answered I'm, it I'm really forward, well. Yes. And, and I want to stick with the survivor here. Because again, the, the focus of this season is is the dechurched, where they're going, why are they leaving, where are they going, what's going to bring them back, and uh, and I want to focus this specifically on survivors who have left the church because of some form of abuse or malpractice. And I, and I will say, as as we were writing the book, The Great Dechurching, you and your wife were both really helpful to me in in thinking through because we addressed this in the book, thinking through how to walk with people who have legit legitimately left because of this kind of abuse or proximity to this abuse. And they've just decided, I'm, I, I'm done. I don't want to go back to any kind of church. 
for the people listening who have loved ones and friends who are in that position, I want you to, I would love to hear basically, I've already heard what you have to say and it was so helpful to me. What would you say to those people who want to minister to their friends and their loved ones who are those survivors, that five to 7%? Yeah. First, I'd want to say, I don't blame you. Um, that's the, re- that's an actually healthy response to abuse is to get as far away as possible from it. That's huge. Yeah. But like, when the person goes, I was abused in that setting. I don't want to go back to that setting. Like, I mean, I, I was rear-ended in uh, 20 years ago when I was a graduate student at Emory because I, I, I hit my brakes, stopped at a red light, and this guy slammed into me. To this day, when I hit my brakes a little bit faster than I want to, just a little bit, I look in the rearview mirror. Like it, and that's, that's getting rear-ended 20 years ago. How much more if you were in a setting that you thought was life-giving, encouraging about grace, love, hope, the future purpose, and you're abused in that setting by the leader of that group? And so the natural response is to get as far, the natural healthy response is get as far away from possible where you could potentially be hurt again. So a brilliant move on getting away. I don't blame you. And then when the abuse happens and then the church frequently bumbles it and fumbles it and causes more harm. So you have a gaping wound of abuse. They're not believed. They're threatened. They're the bad person. You're pouring salt in the wounds, which just stings even more. Uh, So there's a reason why many people who are abused in the Christian environment never go back to church because they don't trust it. Don't blame them for not trusting it. Now, What's fascinating about people who have been abused but left the church is many of them cling to Christ and his good news really strongly. That's why I love the research that you all are doing, because what you're finding is that in some of the research I did previously and I do in my apologetics class is that people who have de-churched, many of them haven't just given up on the faith. They haven't turned away. They haven't gone apostate and said, we're done with Jesus. Actually, they are holding on to the resurrection. The amount of de-churched people who believe in the bodily resurrection is actually surprising. I love doing this in apologetics and to churches. Yeah, I think with de-churched evangelicals, it, it's something like 67% still believe in the resurrection. That's what I could I, be a percent or two off, but I'm not much more than are, that. Uh, if anything, you were a percent or two off because the, the research I did separately was 66% of the believe. And so, uh, and, and in surveys, you're one or 2%, you're, that's bullseye. <laughs> Two thirds of D church people believe in the bodily resurrection. That's huge. That means like, that's why I love your work. And so what I would also want to say is don't equate like, so then you get into pastoral sense. So, Hey, I believe you. I hear you. Don't blame you. Do not blame you one bit. And I think it's actually a healthy response that you did leave. Now let's not equate the person who work at Jesus Christ to his church. Now uh, we should associate the two. Um, they are related to each other, but there are churches where that does not happen. Now finding out what churches they are and all that kind of stuff is, is, is difficult to find, but uh, maybe not dismissing the entire institution of the church would be, uh, would, would be a good thing to consider. Now, you can also find other ways to get be spiritually nourished. There are, I mean, throughout the history of the church, I mean, going to an institution of a church, of a building is one thing, but there are small groups that participate like churches. There are ways for you to have spiritual 
friendship, community, and nurture. Um, and there are churches around the world that that's they have pastors who lead in those things. So finding a way um, to receive the preached word, receive the sacraments or ordinances, and the the life of doing this together. Um, that's what I want to say is, uh, what else? I mean, there's a few other things. I mean, we're friends. So what am I leaving out that I may have said before? Or uh, oh, that we, that It was great. And I also think about, it, you know, helping that person, you know, letting them know they don't have to go, you know, affirming the choice they made, but le- helping the door open to maybe there is a safe church out there when you're ready. And then maybe, uh, you know, the entry point doesn't have to be right away the church. Maybe it's a Bible study. And then there's a good group of friends that said, hey, when you're ready, we'll go with you. And here and here are the questions that, that you should be asking your new church. And I get asked these questions. Um, you know, what... Questions to hold me. I remember a new member class. There was actually a, a counselor who was joining the church recently and said, asked me what kind of accountability I have, what would happen if A, B, or C happened, uh, what's built into the structure. And, and they were great questions and just helping those people know your expectations are good and, and let's help you find a church whose leaders have the same expectations. I love that. That's, um, that's I, I do the same thing when I, when I have friends who go, hey, what church should I go to? And I'll call around. I'll be like, hey, where's a church where I can entrust this person? They're, they're coming from one of our churches. And they're moving to San Diego or Wisconsin or New York. And I go around and call. And so I, I love the proactive helping them find a church. Say, hey, let's get a healthy one. Because not all churches are healthy. You're acknowledging. You're actually affirming what they've experienced. And, and there are some uh, grace. God, the response to abuse in Christian environments does certifications. So I frequently find out when people ask me, hey, who, I'll just call them and say, hey, what, what churches in this area have been certified? Not that, that that's not a silver bullet, it's not, per, but the fact that the church is taking it so seriously, they're getting certified. There's a group called Plus One. Um, I, I uh, was on their podcast and it's, uh, it's for single moms. And I worked with her and she's making a list with her community of uh, specifically women, um, maybe men too, but um, who have experienced intimate partner abuse, domestic abuse. And they want to find out because many women who've been abused and, and men are abused too in relationships, one out of 20 men. So I'm, while I'm talking about women, I want to make sure we understand men are uh, have experienced domestic abuse. But women, when they're in a church setting, they usually are take the brunt of coming forward about their husband's covenant breaking, mind-boggling that the abused woman would take the brunt of his covenant breaking because God hates divorce. We've all heard that thing. He also hates violence. The Bible said so a few hundred times. And even the part about hating divorce is not being applied properly according to the word of God and how that should be interpreted and applied. Anyway, they're working on a community of saying, hey, what churches have you found that are really healthy on this? So there are groups out there that are working on helping people who've experienced abuse find healthy churches. So I love the vision that there is. And then the other thing, just on a pastoral sense, people have left the church. Many of them have been in settings where there's a high view of church and they feel guilty already. They feel like they're letting God down and they're a JV version of a Christian because they're not strong enough to go to a church, even though they were abused in a church setting. And so a lot of what's animating that is some anger, a lot of pain, but a ton of guilt. That's what I've seen. And that's why I like your response, Jim, because it has a graciousness to it of like, hey, maybe we can find you a, a safe place that, that you would feel 
feel comfortable and safe in because they're, they're, a lot of them are carrying a burden that's not their burden. That's the burden the church has given them, that Satan has given them, that their conscience has given them. But Jesus is saying, no, we have passages in the Bible about the leaders that harmed you. Ezekiel 34 and the millstone passages. There are like, look at what Jesus says about people who have harmed children and people who harm the sheep. God goes nuts when his sheep are harmed. Zechariah says, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. The language there is plunder. Whoever harmfully touches you, it's like they're sticking their finger in God's eye, the most precious, vulnerable place there is. And so the Bible is filled with protection of God's people and God's desire to protect them. And when the church is going against God, the church might need to watch out because it's not acting like a church. And Jesus chops those things off the vine and throws them into the fire and millstones. And so um, you're, you should have those expectations of being safe in a place to worship God with other Christians and other sheep. That is a godly and good goal. And I love, that's why I love the response that you asked Mike about caring pastorally for the victim and you, um, Jim, about the, the gentle, patient, let's go one step at a time and see where you're comfortable. That's, that just sounds like a pastoral, godly way. It sounds like the way Jesus would have done it. We're going to hit pause with Justin Holcomb as we finish talking about abuse in the church and look forward to next week picking back up with Justin and hearing more about pastoral falls and how exactly they have affected the great de-churching. Stay with us next week. <laughs>